We will be continuing with our exposition of John 14 today. And just by way of context, up to now in the narrative, in the text, Jesus has been seeking to comfort His disciples who were troubled over His soon departure and return to the Father. I mean, this is transpiring on the night of His arrest. This is happening during the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper is what we typically call it. And so everything that we see happening in in chapter 14 takes place during the Last Supper and they're at this supper table and Jesus has been giving them some news. One of you will betray me. We saw this in chapter 13 and I'm, I'm going to the Father soon. We saw that in chapter 13. And so the disciples have been with Him for three years straight loved in a way that they've never been loved before, cared for in a way that they've never been cared for. They have fallen in love with Jesus over the last three years, and and now the idea of Him leaving has just uh, nearly paralyzed them with fear and and sorrow. And so He's been issuing a a series of, of what I just call promises. They're kind of guarantees, like when I go to the Father, these are the things I'm going to do for you. And, and chapter 14 has a bunch of them, seven, eight, nine. I'm, I don't know how many for sure yet, but there's a lot of them here. There's these promises, and we've been, we've been looking at them. And uh, last Sunday, we focused on the promise of answered prayer in verses 13 and 14, uh, which was just uh, phenomenal for me. We actually learned what it means to pray in Jesus' name, which does not have to do with just hanging His name on the back end of our prayers, but praying in a way that is consistent with His person and work. And uh, it would seem or appear, because of the text, that at this point, uh, some of the disciples, if not all of them, were actually sobbing now. So they've gone from being frightened by Jesus' announcements, you know, there's going to be a betrayer, and that guy already left, Judas is already out of the room, I'm leaving you to go back to the Father, you know, and these, this news has just messed them up. But now I think they're sobbing. Now I think they've gotten to this point where they're, they're just really, really bothered by this. And, and some of them are crying, and, and they're not composing themselves. They're not responding uh, in, in a way that, that Jesus wants them to respond. And it would seem that the promises that He has, he has made or unpacked so far have had little to no positive effect on them. And, and this is not the way Jesus wants or wanted His disciples to manifest love for Him. You know, this kind of sobbing. I'm not saying that it's, it's not okay to sob, to be sorrowful, but the way they're responding is not the target for them. And, and this is not the way He wants them to manifest love for Him. So in, in this next verse, in verse 15, He He interrupts his string of promises to remind them of an important truth and to kind of redirect their affections. Like, you're kind of aiming wrong, guys. Understand you're sad, but this is not the way that I want you to be. This is not the way that I want you to love me. And so now we need to pick it up at verse 15. And that's our text today. We're not going any further than that. There's there's plenty in this text. In fact, um, 20, 30, 40 sermons of mine wouldn't exhaust it. A hundred sermons of mine wouldn't exhaust it. The Word of God is one meaning always, but a zillion applications. And so, but this is a phenomenal text. In fact, maybe I'll just couch it by saying that when I went to the commentaries on this text, all of the guys that preached on this text that I 
admire and look at their commentaries, they included it, it was like 15 through verse 26. And so with that being said, very little was said about verse 15. And when I read verse 15, I thought, man, this could be a sermon series. So that's why I camped out on it. But let me just read it, and then we'll, we'll begin to analyze and break it down and apply it. Jesus says this, in the midst of this sorrow, He says, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. Now, here's the deal. When I first read this verse, it seemed disconnected from the prior verses in context. It didn't seem to connect with it. And uh, when I started reading A.W. Pink, whom I, I really respect, his commentary, I agreed with his initial assessment. This isn't where he ultimately landed on this verse, but this is something that he said about it. He said, there seems to be a most abrupt change in subject here, and many have been puzzled in finding the connection." That was my first thought when I read it. You know, you've been giving these promises, and then all of a sudden, it seems like he lays down this kind of challenge or reminder or something. So it didn't really make much sense to me. Now, I can see how verse 15 is tied to verse 16 and beyond. I can see how it's contextual there. But I had a problem with, is, there a, you know, is it actually linked to 13 and 14? Absolutely, it is. But I had to go outside of this chapter to find the link. I had to go to another uh, bit of Scripture penned by the Apostle John through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in 1 John 3.22. Here's where we see the link. Here's where 15 is linked to 13 and 14, which are all about prayer. This is what John says. Listen to this. He says, whatever we ask, we receive from Him. So right off the bat, we know he's talking about prayer. Whatever we ask, we receive from Jesus. And here's why. He says, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. There it is. So according to John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, according to God, keeping Jesus' commandments is also, also requisite to having our prayers answered in the affirmative. Last week we talked about how praying in Jesus' name is requisite to having our prayers answered in the affirmative. That's praying in a way that is consistent with who He is and what He's done and what He's doing. So here there's another requisite, obedience to Jesus' commandments. In other words, we must pray in His name and keep His commandments if we want our prayers to be answered in the affirmative. Now, we established this last week. I think praying in Jesus' name honors and exalts the Lord Jesus. Again, it's not just hanging His name on the end of your prayer. It's praying in a way that is consistent with who He is and what He's done and what He's doing. Now, keeping His commandments, however, shows that we truly love Him and truly desire to please Him. So think about the connection there. If we are, obey, or if we are living obedient lives and we're praying to Him. I mean, he, he, obedience represents wanting to please Him and loving Him. So how could He not desire to answer the prayers of those who are praying in such a way that is reflected in love through obedience? Of course He would. Of course He would. So 
So yes, if we're walking in obedience, it shows that we love Him and desire to please Him, and that's going to frame our prayers. Our prayers are going to be about loving Him and wanting to please Him. So how could He not want to answer our prayers in the affirmative if we're walking in obedience? I like what R.C. Sproul said at this point. He said, genuine love for Jesus manifests manifests itself in obedience to His commandments. I mean, that's really the driving truth of this text. Let me read it again. Genuine love for Jesus manifests itself in obedience to His commandments. In other words, the one who loves Jesus subordinates his own desires to those of the Lord. That kind of love rules out treating Jesus as a celestial vending machine who exists to meet our wants and desires. I think he's just nailed it there. There's how 15 is tied to to 13 and 14. And as I said, and I'll say it this way, our benevolent king of kings, our great high priest, will gladly answer in the affirmative our prayers when we are honoring and loving him in this way through obedience to his commands. Of course he's going to answer our prayers because we're actually praying for what he wants and he desires right? So, now some of you could be thinking at this point, well, man, I thought prayer was much simpler. Yeah, I just blurt out a bunch of words to Jesus and hang his name on the end of it and we're good to go. Some might be thinking, why did Jesus add stipulations to prayer? Well, you know, he's pretty much added stipulations to everything. Well, he loves us unconditionally. Yeah, that's why he said repent. It just baffles me. There's a lot of conditions. There's a lot of stipulation in Scripture that we don't care to acknowledge. He wants us to pray in a certain way, not just do whatever we want. When we come together to worship on Sunday, He wants us to worship Him a certain way, not just do whatever we want, believe it or not. Some might be thinking, well, why did He make it difficult for us? I mean, praying in His name, praying in a way that's consistent with who He is and what He's done and what He's doing and, and walking in obedience. Are you kidding me? That's the catalyst for prayer? Where this is what we have to do to get Him answered and all that? Why did He add these stipulations? Why did He make it so difficult for us to approach Him? Well, I don't think it's a matter of making it difficult, of Him making it difficult for us to approach Him at all. I don't think it has to do with, I'm going to raise the difficulty level so my people have a hard time getting to me. I don't think that's at all what He's after. I think it has to do with Him being a holy, righteous, and just King. A holy, righteous, and just King is not going to reward His subjects when they address Him in a way that is disrespectful, that dishonors His position and glory. A holy, righteous, and just king is not going to to, um, reward his subjects while they're walking in active disobedience against his commands. Would you do that as a parent to your children? Hey, mom, hey, dad, forget you, blah, blah, blah. Hey, by the way, I want this for Christmas. Well, let me get right on that. No, it's actually go to your room, and the next step is for me to get the whip. I mean, you should think about this in terms of parenting. You should. When, when my children, and they don't do it as often because they're older, and now they'll, they know I'll just kill them. Before, I'd just spank them. Now, I'd just, when they're over 18, you just kill them. You just, wait, you just wipe them out. Right? They know that. Dad will kill us now. He used to spank us. Now he'll kill us. I wouldn't kill them. I thought about it. 
when my children treat me or their mother with disrespect, when they disobey our commands, we do not reward them. We discipline them. And we pray that they would come to their senses and repent. That's what we do. We don't reward them. We discipline them. We, we, we try to reason with them and help them understand the error of their way. Help them to get them to own that and to confess that and to move forward. So, yeah, Jesus wants us to pray to him in, in a certain way. And aren't you thankful that he tells us how to? And that he tells us if we follow his pattern and, and, and follow his will for that, that he'll gladly answer our prayers? Well, that doesn't sound like someone who's trying to control or just make things difficult. That sounds like somebody who's trying to help us do what we need to do and, and receive what we need to receive so we can move forward with the gospel or what it is we're aiming to do. Oh, I see it as an act of benevolence, not control. Last Sunday, I asked a series of could-it-be questions. Here's one more, and then we'll, we'll move on because I don't want to beat that subject like a dead horse. Could it be that the reason why some of our prayers are not answered in the affirmative is because we are walking in disobedience? That we're not living lives that are pleasing to Jesus? How foolish, when I think about that, how foolish I now feel for even asking anything of Him. Will you do this for me, Lord? Will you do that for me, Lord? Most of my prayers are pretty selfish anyways. And then to be walking in active disobedience... Again, how would I respond to one of my children if they're coming to me in that way? You know, my kids don't pray to me, but they come and ask for things. And if they're walking in disobedience and jacking us up and stirring up our house and causing trouble, I'm not going to say, certainly, let me get right on that. I'm going to say, I'm not doing a darn thing for you right now other than praying for you, and I'm about to whoop you. Man, I, you know, he, he's the one that gets to set the rules. And, and if we follow what he's commanded us to follow. There, there, you know, the law is not there in place to control and to beat us down. It's there to bring maximum joy into our lives when we obey his commands, period. It's not there to control you. It's not there to stop you from you know, this or that. It's there to bring you joy. If you actually do what God says, you'll have the, you will have your best life now. <laughs> and it, you're saying, oh my gosh, now he's quoting Osteen. I did not quote Osteen because Osteen doesn't talk about doing what pleases God. He does not talk about obedience to the law. He never even mentions the law. So don't equate what I said to that. Anyways, I, don't want, to, I want to talk about this forever, but I won't. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. Prayer is that important. It really is. Jesus tells his disciples here in verse 15 that if they love him, they will prove it through obedience to his commands rather than through sorrow and regret. In a nutshell, that's pretty much what he said. A.W. Pink again, he said this. This is a paraphrase. There's a couple here. Love for Jesus is not to be manifested by inconsolable regrets, but by a glad and prompt compliance with his commandments. Amen. Albert Barnes' paraphrase of verse 15 is super, super helpful as well. It says, do not show, he's, it's as if Jesus has said this directly to his disciples, do not show your love by grief at my departure merely or by profession, but by obedience. And this is how he wants us to show love for him and love him is through obeying what he's told us to do. Now, through his own relationship 
with His Father, with the Heavenly Father, Jesus set for His disciples an example of what it looks like to love through obedience. And by the way, that's the title of this sermon. I mean, the way that, that Jesus interacted with the Father and prayed to the Father and went to the Father and walked with the Father in, in front of the disciples all the time, He modeled love through obedience. He showed them how to do this. He really did. He loved the Father and manifested His love for the Father through obedience to the Father's will. Precisely what Jesus did. Now, what did Jesus say back in John 6, 38? It's been about 62 years since we were there. He said this, For I have come down from heaven, not what? To do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Why was obeying the Father and doing His will Jesus' literal number one goal, objective? Why was that His ultimate prerogative? Because He loved the Father. Jesus obeyed the Father because He loved the Father, because He loves the Father. He loves the Father now. In verse 15, Jesus basically tells His disciples, I've, I've set an example for you. I've even taught you how to do this with Me. And I want you to continue to do it once I'm physically gone. I want you to continue to do it once I'm gone. Keep loving Me through obedience to My commandments. So you must understand, this isn't some kind of a new thing that Jesus is saying to them. The disciples have already been practicing this. They've already been obeying the Lord's instruction and loving Him through obedience. In a way, Jesus is saying, keep doing what you've been doing. You're here mourning and weeping and crying. You don't even know what's about to happen. I'm about to save you fools. If I don't go to the cross, if I don't go to the tomb... If I, don't go, if I don't get risen, if I don't ascend, you don't have life. Stop the weeping. Love me through obedience. I think that's what he's trying to convey, probably in a far more gentle way than I'm doing now. He wants them to keep loving him through obedience to his commands. You've been obeying me this whole time. I've been with you. You're going to have to do that once I'm gone. And I want you to notice a detail. This is probably my favorite part of the message. I want you to notice a detail. I want you to take, and if you don't mind writing in your Bible or writing it down on your notes, I want you to write the word my. Jesus says, my commandments. He didn't say the commandments, the Ten Commandments. He didn't say the Decalogue. He didn't say God's commandments. He said, my commandments, my commandments. And here, the, the tender, the tenderest Savior. He's so tender with them. I wish I was more like him. That way I could be more tender to you, but I'm kind of hard. But he's so tender with them, and I want to be tender like this. He's here comforting his sorrowing disciples, right? But here, at the same time that he's doing this, he, he maintains his divine majesty and he, he insists, he literally through saying my commandments, he insists that they recognize his divine authority. In the midst of all of this 
humble love and care. Remember, he just washed their feet. God washed guys' feet. That's incredible to me. And in the midst of that, he says, my commandments, he asserts his divinity and he asserts his divine authority. These are my commandments that you must love me through. The one who led the Israelites out of Egypt through the wilderness and gave them the law was none other than Jesus himself. Read 1 Corinthians 10, 4. Chapter 10, verse 4. It talks about how some of them disobeyed back then. And, and, and Paul's warning them, don't do it again. The inference we draw from that is they were disobeying, disobeying Jesus in the wilderness. It was Jesus who led them out. Well, I thought it was Moses. Well, certainly Moses was there, but he was merely the earthly leader. But Jesus was the divine pillar of cloud during the day and pillar of fire at night. And with his own divine finger emblazoned the Ten Commandments onto those cold tablets of stone, it was Jesus. Jesus who did that. A.W. Pink again. I should have just preached his message. He says, the one who wrote upon the tablets of stone is none other than the one who died on Calvary's cross. And he who here says, if you love me, keep the commandments, also said at Sinai that he would show mercy unto thousands of them that what? That love me and keep my commandments. Wow. Wow. Now, a great question arises. They're Jesus' commandments. The Ten Commandments are His commandments. The the, the royal law, all the commandments, every commandment from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation is Jesus' commandment. They're God's commandments. But a great question arises, what commandments, what are these commandments? Well, we've already alluded to the fact that they're the Ten Commandments. But I like what John Brown, Dr. John Brown says. He kind of gives a, a full picture here. He describes what Jesus meant. He says, The whole revelation of the divine will, <laughs> respecting what I am to believe and feel and do and suffer, contained in the Holy Scriptures, is the law of Christ. Wow. Both volumes of Christ are the work of the Spirit of Christ. His first and great commandment is... You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second great commandment is like it unto the first, or like unto the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He continues, the commandments of Christ, and I like this. This is so broad. It's such a broad meaning. The commandments of Christ include whatever is good and whatever God requires of us. So we don't want to narrow it down to just the Ten Commandments, but if you actually examine the Ten Commandments and do an in-depth study on them, they cover everything. They cover everything that God wants, wanted covered in His law. I really like the way 
Dr. Brown cited the scriptures where, where Jesus combines God's commandments. He kind of boils them down and summarizes them, right? Commandments 1 through 4, and I'm speaking of the Ten Commandments here in particular. Commandments 1 through 4 are represented in Jesus' first statement, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's the first table of the law. And then you have the second table, right? Commandments through 5 through 10, they're, they're represented in, in Jesus' second statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Man, if, if we're not sure what it looks like to actually love God, what it actually looks like to love others, we can easily turn to Exodus chapter 20 and look at verses 1 through 17 and, and study the Ten Commandments. We can, we can flip over to Matthew 5 and, and read Jerse, be, begin to read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is... Probably the greatest, no doubt, the greatest exposition of the commandments that's in existence. Jesus gives the God's commandments, he gives the Ten Commandments there a full treatment. And if we're not sure what these commandments are and what we're to do, we can look to the Ten Commandments, we can look to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Man, we can, we can read the Gospels and, 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 and read Jesus' own words there. We, we can read the entire New Testament. We can read the epistles. We, we, can, we can read all of Scripture. They're everywhere. You know, I was, I was very tempted to pause right here and, and just give an overview of the Ten Commandments because I like to be a, a very practical preacher. But you know what? I'm not supposed to do everything for you. And if you're living off of what I'm doing, you're doomed. It's our responsibility as Christians to know what Jesus has commanded, to understand what he's commanded. It's not my responsibility to teach you every facet of truth. I don't even understand every facet of truth. So I'm not going to turn this into a topical thing where I begin to expound the Ten Commandments, you go to Exodus 20, 1 through 17 and read them. You, you take your time to go to the Sermon on the Mount and read it. You read the New Testament. Man, I, I hope you guys are in the Word. And I hope you test what I'm saying every Sunday against the Word. And I hope you have enough courage to say something to me in love, please, <laughs> if you find a discrepancy or a concern. It is our responsibility, beloved, to know and understand what Jesus has commanded. Think of it like this. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. How can we love Jesus through obedience to his commandments if we don't know and understand his commandments? It is an exercise in futility to attempt to love Jesus apart from what he's revealed in his word, in particular, his commandments. Yet thousands of so-called Christians today are attempting to do this. Well, I just love him. 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 You love weed. With biblical ignorance at an all-time high in our day, it's no wonder that so many Christians are walking in disobedience and disgracing the one who bought them at a price. 
Christians today, they just, not all, but so many just don't, don't know the word and don't know, yeah, I love Jesus, but I really don't know what he's about or what he taught. How can we possibly begin to love him through obedience to his commandments when we don't know his commandments? We've got to get to know his commandments. We've got to get, that's how we get to know him. That's how we get to know his character, his flawless, perfected character. That's, that's what we aim for, is to, is to love him through obedience to his commandments. But how are we going to even begin to love him if we don't know his commandments? And there's a great many of people in the church today that, that do know His commandments and just don't care to obey Him. But somehow they still love Jesus. Well, I'm sorry, friend. Jesus said right here, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. That's how you love Him. There's no other way to love Him. You, you could try to make one up. You could just tease yourself into thinking that I can just keep verbalizing that or, or singing about, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Look, I'm doing it. And then you walk out of here and you're living a life of habitual disobedience. You're not loving him. He's not interested in lip service. He's not interested in that from me or from you. He's not. He's not. Application. And you're thinking, wow, you're getting to that early. Well, the application's longer than the rest of the message. So It is. It, it just, this, is, this is the nuts and bolts. It's a simple text. I just begin this phase by saying that obedience is, I'm citing MacArthur here, obedience is the hallmark of genuine saving faith and love for God. It's the hallmark. It's the pinnacle. It's the top. It, it is the thing that shows that you love God. It is, the, it is what shows that you love God. You can say you love God. You can sing you love God. You can, you can tell people you love God. You can, you can do what you want. That's fine. But doing His will and obeying Him is how you actually show it. Those who are truly saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, will invariably respond with a life of submission and service to the Lord. Since their hearts have been regenerated and their minds have been renewed, genuine Christians cannot help but outwardly reflect who they are on the inside. New creations in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 you know, This is something that I experienced firsthand. That when I was first saved, I knew it wasn't a work of mine because I had been trying to change my life my whole life. And the way that I changed it was just by switching to different drugs. Well, I'll try this now. I couldn't change my life. When my wife said, you need to get it together, I'm probably going to leave you if you don't. I didn't know how to do that. I had a desire to do it, but I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know what to do. I knew I needed to stop certain behaviors and, and patterns and addictions, but I felt power. I just didn't know. I couldn't do anything. But then I was changed by something from the outside that came in, different. I couldn't deny who I had just become. Something was different, 
it had a different atti- I had a different attitude, a different mindset, a different view of things. It's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. I couldn't estimate it. I, I couldn't. I mean, the, the Spirit is John three. He's like the wind. You, you can't predetermine what you're going to do. These churches that are always planning these healing services and everything, and the Spirit's going to show up. You can't. It's the stupidest thing in the world. You can't plan for the Spirit to do anything because He's God. We're going to make God show up over here on Tuesday night. Make sure you're here. Yeah. Okay. God's never even been in that place over there. So no. Well, at least He's not there now. It's not happening. It's not happening. It's an inward work, and you cannot deny who you are. You cannot. If you've been regenerated, you can't cease to be regenerated. You can't unregenerate yourself. You have been changed at the deepest level by a supernatural God, omnipresent, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing God. You cannot undo what He has done for you can't you're going to be different those who say well i'm a christian i don't practice newsflash you're not a christian because christians practice even at first it's in little measures they practice because you cannot deny who you become it's on the inside working its way out you can't change back to who you were now you can certainly follow some of those old patterns and do some of those old stupid things you have a flesh you have to deal with, but you can't, you can't not be a new creation any longer. You're a new creation, and that's it. And the work that He began in you, He will bring to fruition. I'll tell you, the Apostle John, he really had a handle on this. Out, out of all the disciples that were there, the 11 that were remaining in the room there, he might have been the one... Now, this probably came to him after the day of Pentecost, but he may have been the one that there was really grasping this because of the way he wrote about this subject so much, not only in his gospel here, but in his, his small epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He understood what Jesus meant here, the idea of loving him through obedience, the idea of being a, a changed person. He understood that. And, and, and a little later... He emphasized the inseparable link between love and obedience in his epistles. In 1 John 2, 3 through 6, he wrote this. For if you've ever wanted to test to see if you're in the true faith, this is the litmus test. He says, by this we know that we have come to know him, speaking of Jesus, if we keep his commandments. (laughs) Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. John just straight up says, if you live a disobedient life, you're not in him. Stop saying you are. You're lying to yourself. You're lying to yourself. Now, here's the deal. I need to back it up a little bit. Just breathe. Remember when I start getting hot and heavy and start getting loud? I'm preaching against myself. Remember? And maybe, maybe, maybe to you too, but most of us in this room, no doubt, if not all of us, claim to know and love Jesus. 
I won't do a show of hands because some of you that don't love Jesus will put your hand up so you don't get singled out. And that's junior high level teaching anyways. If you love Jesus, put your hand up. All the kids are like, while he's kissing Susie. It's like, he loves Susie too. Hey, he's got two loves in his life. I'll make sure to talk to him after the service. Think about it. Most of us in this room, if not all of us, claim to know and love Jesus. I know, I know everyone in this room, almost everyone in this room. There's a few of you that I don't know very well. But for the most part, I can say just by scanning and looking around, yeah. But the great question we have before us today is, do we manifest our love for him through obedience to his commandments? Just about all of us say, yeah, I know him, I love him. But is that love for him manifested through obedience to his commandments? We fall into the camp of not even knowing what he commanded. <laughs> How can you love him if you don't know what he commanded? We fall into the camp of not obeying him consistently. How can you say you love him? Now, there, there are just an obscene amount, just too many people in the churches today that, that say they love Jesus and are just walking in habitual disobedience, just drunkenness and smoking dope all the time, sexual immorality, sleeping with their girlfriends, boyfriends, doing, doing whatever. I love Jesus and doing all this stuff at the same time. It's just gross immorality in churches today. It's just a reality. It's just terrible. And when you question these people, if you have an opportunity to, I do as a pastor sometimes to say, hey, what's going on, man? You know, what you're saying on Sundays or last Tuesday when we're hanging out at lunch, it's not, it doesn't line up with, with, with what you're actually doing here. So, so, so what's up, man? You know, because that's a good thing to do. Especially at RHC, we like transparency, even though it stings sometimes. And when you question these people, sometimes you get this response, don't judge me, you Pharisee. You don't understand the grace of God. You're saying because you're sleeping with your girlfriend, you say you love Jesus in the same sentence. You say you love Jesus, and then I find out you're doing these things. And, 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 I, and I, I'm asking you why you're doing this and in questioning your love for Jesus, and you're going to call me a Pharisee, a legalist? And you're going to say, I don't understand the grace of God? I think that you don't understand the grace of God because the grace of God doesn't just save us. It empowers our obedience. If we're not obeying Him, we don't have grace. It's a fact. I mean, I can come at this from every angle. You ready? You want to do it? Let's do it. You're thinking, no, we don't need to go there. Maybe. Now, there's a theological term for this mindset. It's called antinomian. The idea that God's commandments don't apply to believers because they're under grace. No. The idea that believers can pretty much do whatever they want because of grace. Well, I'm under grace, and I'm once saved, always saved. I'm under grace, and, you know, it, it, what I do really doesn't bear any consequence on, on, on any of that and, and blah, 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 blah. I've, I've just been doing this for so long now. I've, I've had every excuse given to me. I've been called a Pharisee. I've been called a preacher of demonic doctrines. It's amazing what happens when you call people out. They go from being so sweet. You're such a nice pet. You son of a mother. <laughs> Like, well, I guess we'll just keep it shallow and you can just go to hell. If, and just again, think of the logic of the text. 
If believers are no longer required to obey God's commandments because they are under grace, why did Jesus say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments? If the antinomians are correct, there is literally no way for us to, lo- uh, to manifest love for Jesus because it's done through obedience to his commandments. Think about that. If Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments, that's how you show it, and we're not required to obey his commandments, how are we ever going to show him love? You're not! <laughs> it was that simple. The truth is, The people that think this way, people that think this way, the truth about them is is that they do not love Jesus. They love their sin. That's reality. Maybe that's you today, and you need to hear this. I'm not beating you up. That's a fact. You love a Jesus, but I'm not convinced you know the Jesus. Years ago, there was a, a pastor out of Florida who preached and, and wrote a lot about God's grace. I mean, just really extensively. I mean, he just, he just kind of came out of nowhere and just started writing all these books. And I actually read one of his books. I thought it was pretty good, but I was pretty naive at the time, theologically naive. But he, he seemed like a, a pretty straight shooter for a bit there, but he was always talking about God's grace, always, always, always. And he was also simultaneously always talking about how God's law doesn't apply to Christians and telling us that the key to godly living is in a right understanding of grace, not in trying to obey God's commandments. And he was flagged as an antinomian by some good Reformed brothers who read his materials, you know, and analyzed his sermons. I don't know if you know who Mark Jones is. He's a pretty respectable guy and he responded to a book that this gentleman had written, and he wrote a book in response to it called Antinomianism, Reformed Theology's Unwelcomed Guest. I bought the book and read it. It was phenomenal. And after reading it, I felt stupid for buying the other guy's book and reading it and going along with it. Amazon would not take it back two and a half years later. It was a great book. And during that hailstorm of controversy, because there was, I mean, at that time, Mark Jones had written his book. This other guy was writing his stuff and doing his thing. And, there, you know, there all these Reformed guys were, like, very alarmed by his teachings and stuff. And there was a hailstorm of controversy going on. And, and um, there were some debates and arguments that had transpired. I think some of those were unfortunate. But in any case, a lot of people came to that pastor who was writing about grace all the time. They came to his defense big time, even one that I respect pretty well. And Rachel likes her as, too. You know what's really interesting about that whole thing? About a year later, that pastor was writing all about grace and downplaying God's commandments and things. About a year later, that pastor was terminated from his position, lost his pastorate because of adultery. He was cheating on his wife the entire time that this was going on. No wonder he downplayed in his preaching and writing a Christian's responsibility to obey Jesus' commandments. This was his way of justifying his sin. If I could just write in such a way to do away with the thing that I keep breaching on a weekly basis, I can make myself feel better about what I'm doing. 
That's what he was doing. How tragic, how sad. The fact of the matter is, we all fail. We all fail. The strongest of Christian men are but men. We all fail to obey the Lord's commandments perfectly and therefore fail to love Him perfectly. And that is why we need the gospel. That's why. Notice how Jesus did not say, if you love me, you will perfectly keep my commandments. You don't see the word perfectly there, do you? He does not expect perfection from his own particular people. He does expect us to be mature. He does expect obedience, but he doesn't demand perfection from those whom he knows and understands cannot be perfect. He himself is the perfect one. We are relying and resting in his righteousness, his perfect righteousness, not our own. I would say he doesn't demand perfection from his people. His people, I'm not talking about unbelievers, because God does demand perfection from them, and hopefully they realize they can't meet that his per perfect demands. They find the alternative, which is the gospel. But he doesn't demand it from his own people. He does, however, expect progression from his people. Progression in the areas of spiritual development, and practical holiness, purity, and so on. That's what he expects from us, not perfection, but progression. I love what MacArthur said. He said, believers cannot expect perfection in this life, but they should expect to be headed in that direction. That's huge. That's huge. But you know what? Verse 15 is not about our performance. Verse 15 is not about how well we or how perfectly we obey Jesus' commandments. Do you know what it really has to do with? It has to do with who we are on the inside and what motivates us. I think that's the better way to interpret verse 15. If we have the Holy Spirit and have been born again, we will love Jesus and we will manifest our love for Him through obedience to His commandments. Love through obedience is part of the salvation package. What does Ephesians 2.10 say? We are created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so what I'm telling you is the inevitable result of true salvation is love for Jesus through obedience to His commandments. If Jesus loves you and you love Him in response because He's regenerated you, you are going to obey. You are going to do it. You are going to obey. Not perfectly, but you will obey. It's built into the deal. Obedience is part of the works that God preordained for you to do after you were saved. And this is Christianity 101. This shouldn't take any of you by surprise unless you haven't been saved for very long. I want you to think about this, too. Earlier I told you that Jesus had set an example 
of love through obedience in his relationship with the Father, right? I wonder if you picked up on something as I've been preaching or if you've been looking at that text. Do you guys realize that our salvation is the direct result of Jesus' love for the Father through obedience to His will and commandments? <laughs> Did any of us care to think about that? Jesus loves the Father and manifested His love for Him through doing precisely what the Father prescribed. Leave heaven, become a man, live a perfect life, perfect obedience, die on a cross, be buried in a tomb, rise from the grave three days later. All of that obedience that Jesus did came through love for the Father and through His love and obedience secured for us our salvation. We're saved because of love through obedience. And Jesus is simply telling us to live our lives in light of that fact and to live that out. It's that simple. Maybe you're thinking, well, man, my life is not characterized by obedience to Jesus' commandments. It's pretty much, if I'm going to be honest with myself, it's characterized by disobedience. I'm just really not interested in His commandments. I'm, I'm interested in, in doing what I want to do. Well, I think that if you're saying that to yourself and being honest with yourself and saying that to yourself, that's a step. But I want you to listen carefully. Is that you? The reason why you're doing this is because you do not have the Holy Spirit. You haven't been born again. You're not actually a Christian, even though you might call yourself one and think you're one. If... if disobedience is your disposition in your operating system, you ain't a Christian, man. I don't care what you tell yourself. I'm telling you, you're not. Well, how dare you? You can't see my heart. Well, you just told me what's in your heart. You know, I can judge a season by looking at a tree. I can tell it's fall. Got to do some yard work. Man, this is because you don't have the Holy Spirit. You haven't been born again. If, if disobedience is your operating system, that's what you're all about, nah, you haven't been born again. And I'll tell you, as a warning, if you continue to love your sin, if you continue to walk in disobedience, you're eventually going to die in your sin. And you're going to be consigned to a place of unimaginable torment and punishment at the hands of the living God. And you're going to deserve every bit of it. You're going to deserve every bit of it, man. You won't be thinking all that sin and disobedience was fun then. You won't be. Well, here's the deal, man. Here's the trick. You cannot make the Holy Spirit come into you. People will tell you today, well, if you just pray this little prayer, the Holy Spirit will come. Eh. There ain't no prayer you can pray to make the Holy Spirit. Again, you don't direct God. We don't call upon Him and tell Him to heal people when we want. We don't tell Him to save people when we want. He does what He wants to do. He does what He has planned to do. You, you can't make the Holy Spirit come into you. You can't cause yourself to be born again. Salvation ain't about you. The only part you play in it is sin. You're the sinner. That's your role. Only God can do those things for you. Only God can, can send the Holy Spirit to come into you. Only God can, can cause you to be born again. 
Maybe something you could do, though. If you're saying to yourself, man, I'm interested in this. This has got my attention. Well, something's already happening in you. I would just tell you that the next step is for you to humble yourself. Just keep humbling yourself. Don't, don't, don't let the enemy speak to you now saying, no, you're okay, you're okay, you don't need Jesus. You do need Him. You need Him as bad as I need Him. Humble yourself. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. Acknowledge that you need saving grace, that you need Jesus And you can ask God for mercy. That's one thing you can do. Ask Him for mercy. Man, if this is what you want, it would seem to me that the Holy Spirit and grace of God are already active in you. I don't think we can even get ourselves to that point. Your next step will be to repent of your unbelief. Turn away from that rejection of Jesus and put your faith, your trust in His person and work alone. You believe that He lived to earn your righteousness. You believe that He died to pay your sin debt, and it was astronomical. No amount of your good works, which there's no such thing of, could ever amount to even, I don't know, anything. You owe God a lot, and Jesus paid it all. You believe that He paid for you, bought you, ransomed you. You believe that He was buried to settle your account. You believe, you better believe that He rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for you. Believe that. Now, now, only now, can you begin to love Jesus through obedience to His commandments. In fact, you've already exercised some love in a sense. You're already obeying Him because this is what He wants you to do. God is calling people all over this world to repent He's calling them to account now. He's saving His people. Maybe you're one of them. Call upon Him for mercy and put your faith in Jesus. For the rest of us, we need to test ourselves to make sure that our love for Jesus is being manifested for Him through daily, moment-by-moment obedience to His commandments, to His will. This is something that the people of God need to test themselves on here. The apostles already loved Jesus, were obeying Him, but Jesus is reiterating this to them because they're going to need this as a reminder as He leaves. We need it as a reminder. Okay, Phil, you say you love Him, show it through obeying what He tells you to do at any given moment. Die to yourself, Phil. Die to yourself. We say we love Jesus, we sing we love Jesus, but do we show that we love Jesus through obedience to His commandments? That's what He's looking for. That's what He desires. This is what He commands. Let's become a congregation that that brings Jesus much glory, much joy as we work together to love Him through obedience to His commandments. The Holy Spirit can help us do this. In fact, without His aid, we can't do anything. In the very next section, Jesus describes how His disciples can love Him through obedience. They can't do it on their own. They will need a helper. In the next text, we will see Jesus promised to send them a helper. That's the Holy Spirit. We, however, are post-Pentecost. We have the helper. We have the Holy Spirit. May we come to Him and humbly ask the helper the Holy Spirit to convict us, 
and lead us, help lead us toward this goal of loving Jesus through obedience. I'll just close with one more quote that I think really is a snapshot of what Jesus meant. It's another one from, from Barnes. He said, keeping his commandments is the only proper evidence of love to Jesus, for mere profession is no proof of love. But that love for him which leads us to do his will, all his will, to love each other, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow him through evil report and through good report is true attachment. True attachment. Amen.